0: This is Euroscopic, a podcast brief about what happened this week, how we got here, and where we're going. I'm William Bluecroft. And this is Martin Gack. You can find this podcast and other essays at our Substack, .substack euroscopic.substack.com. And of course, you can subscribe wherever your ears go for podcasts. Like, comment, share you know the drill if you like it let us know and a friend or two of yours as well this episode was recorded on thursday august 3rd 2023 so nice to be joining you from uh my uh my my what hopefully is my normal recording place
1: oh yeah that's right you were kind of on the road in strange uh strange locations strange. but even in this case
0: i i uh I can even afford to put on a shirt.
1: Um, yeah, I did put some makeup on as well. So oh, I, very, much- I
0: thought you were looking particularly pretty this morning. Thank you. Berlin is a place where um, dogs and smokers have more rights than uh, non-smoking people. If you go to a restaurant in, in Berlin the, on a hot summer day, which we haven't had in a while, but with a dog, the first thing they the waiter will bring out is a bowl of water for the dog. And then if you ask for water, they will look at you funny, Um, to the point of the point of even sometimes I've been told, oh, we can't give you water because our pipes aren't clean, Um, which then wonders what they're cooking their food in. And then the same thing with smoking, where uh, where smokers have far more rights than non-smokers. The WHO, the World Health Organization, slammed Germany for being completely lax on fighting uh, tobacco and smoking addiction. Um, Germany is way behind by any measure of sort of modern and and current basic standards of, of, of fighting smoking. It has some of the highest smoking rates in
1: Europe. I mean, I arrived here, you know, 11, 11 years ago from New York, where you could not really smoke anywhere. And where, uh, you know, you needed to pretty much sell a kidney to buy a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. Um, and I landed in Germany, hoping for sort of you know bio organic tomatoes and and people sort of you know exhaling minty freshness. And I found that 30% back then of Germany still smogged, which was an extraordinary figure. I mean, it was actually very very close then um to north africa i mean this is something that has not really changed looking at these eu statistics right now it has germany has the fourth highest smoking uh,
0: percentage in the european union and it's grouped with countries that it probably in many other ways would not like to be in groups with like bulgaria greece latvia You know, this is one of the. This is one of. This is a a fine example of this weirdness about Germany. How it's not quite Western Europe. It's not quite Eastern Europe. Germany is its own thing. It's certainly not as Western, however you want to define Western. It's not nearly as Western as Germans themselves like to think they are. Uh, It has a lot of the traits that you would find stereotypically in a place like Greece or Southern Italy or Bulgaria um, or Croatia. Except without without the the positive upside of of community of sense of pulling together of sense of improvisation because um, you know in those countries where play, people know things are not going to work so they find
1: workarounds to make stuff right I think that I mean the the curious thing about Germany and smoke in particular but I mean there are other there are other areas as well uh, that you have over overregulated country. Yeah. So you know, in many of these other in other destinations, I mean you would have sort of state that is much more relaxed and then of course, you know, issues of public health which are more relaxed. But in Germany you expect probably a better Scandinavian approach. And you actually do not have it. I mean, you don't have it in that and you don't have it in many other areas. This week I actually was uh, completely curious about I don't know if you caught this, but Italy wants to leave China's belt and road. Um Yeah. Tell us more about that. Meloni sent out her defense minister uh, to send say that basically the building, the, the Belt and Road uh, was uh, a catastrophe, was disastrous. Uh, so now they're trying to figure out how to pull out of that and obviously uh, to no pleasure uh, by
0: Beijing. You know, we've talked a lot about the far right. And every every time someone on the a far right or someone who flirts with the far right comes into power, especially in Italy, everybody at the EU level loses their mind and thinks it's the end of the world. And in the converse, when a sort of an EU loving, liberal, friendly, cuddlier uh, person comes in, everyone thinks the world has been saved, of course, because we all seem to have amnesia and are only living in this moment and forget that, especially in a place like Italy, political cycles are you know, a, a, a flash yeah. in the pan and things change very quickly. So you had Maloney come in, everyone's panicked about her positions and, and uh, you know, how anti-EU she is and how anti-Western, and she's in the pocket of Putin, and she's in the pocket of, of all the autocracies and all the enemies of the West. But actually she's quite, she's towed, she's towed the European, liberal European, Western
1: American line I, I think that there are a couple of things going on. The first one is that Chinese investment in Italy has not really produced much of anything, and if anything, has actually uh, made the 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 um, trade ba- imbalance with China worse. Uh, so Italy has not seen much from it. Uh, so to some extent, it's a fairly cheap, you know being that they can offer the powers that be in Washington and Brussels that's on the one hand on the other hand i mean i think that we should not forget that meloni has actually openly uh you know lavish praise and praise and and, and has supported putin uh really for quite a while. And as a matter of fact, I mean, even today, even as people like Biden are receiving her with, you know, pomp and circumstance in Washington, Meloni remains ideologically, uh, and in matters of public policy, much, much closer to Putin than she will ever be to the American Democrats. So I think that what it comes down to is, on the one hand, real politics, because the fact is that with the war in Ukraine, the Italian Italian arms industry has a lot of cash to make. On the other hand, Italy stands a lot to lose if they go the way of of Orban. And then on the other hand, the other thing that I think it's very important for the Meloni government, is that the trade of giving away China, which has not, as I said, yield much, and actually becoming a recognized central figure, as they, by the way, uh, prepare to take more central roles in different European positions, is actually it's a no-brainer. Uh, you know, the problem is also, and, and I don't know if it's a problem or it's actually what they're counting on, which is it will be no easy task to get out of the of the of the Belt and Road. So it's not, you know, this might well just be a flexing of muscles, sending all the right signals, saying the right things, which in the end turns to nothing. Keep your, your, your friends close,
0: your enemies closer kind of thing. Uh, and we saw that with Biden's you know reception of Maloney at the White House, which got a lot of criticism. Given uh, Maloney's stance, and of course, a lot of people pointed out the obvious that, as you just said, Biden and Maloney ideologically are very uh, on very different ends of the spectrum in many in many ways. But we it reminded me a lot of the welcome that the United States gave to Modi, the Prime Minister of India, which it, we had very similar um you know criticisms and talking heads and think pieces about, you know, what is, You know, you know, why is the United States kind of ignoring a lot of the more strongman elements of Modi? Um, Because, of course, there are interests at play uh, in terms of confronting Russia and China. And it's better to keep these people close to you than to to, to lecture them and and alienate them. I think that the
1: problem is that the right in Italy has a right elsewhere. I mean, if you look at the UK, if you look at the U.S. even, first of all, they are very good at playing the long game. And keep in mind that they are playing from the same now. They're all playing from the same playbook, Uh, but they are also very disciplined. What that could mean is that we have, you know, Meloni sitting there for a much, much longer time.
0: For me, it's it's a big story. It's a small story. It's an unknown story. It's just this coup in Niger that happened uh, not so long ago. Another coup in Niger which has had the predictable sort of story arc where it starts off as just, oh, another thing happening far away um, in a place that no one can really find on a map. And then people realize, oh, wait a minute, Germany, France, the EU, they have big interests in this part of the world and they've staked a lot of money and resources into this part of the world. It's it's especially for the French and uh, under Macron, who likes, who's trying to push this whole idea of European sovereignty, the Sahel is like, the EU's chance to be like America to be the, the 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 policeman of the world and make you know spread democracy and freedom throughout the world that this is like their little test case and it just every, every time they've tried to do this it has just flown back in their faces first by trying in Mali and then Mali got overrun by Russian interests and Wagner troops and they became the, the European powers there became persona non grata after I don't know how many coups and then so then there was a big announcement okay well we've given up on Mali we're going to move over to Niger because Niger is stable and there's a democratically elected government uh, and we can trust them there are a, a the the Germans even said in a big You know a big show a big press show back in april when both the defense minister and the development minister went there uh, to show that germany means business on the international scale um, that they are a reliable partner and of course a few months later you have this coup and it's still sort of bubbling and things are not settled and we don't know where it's going to go yet Uh, but it it looks incredibly it it, it makes the eu uh, and especially the germans and the french look incredibly flat-footed and naive Uh, about some very unstable parts of the world.
1: The Niger story is, uh, in my estimation, is massive. And when you actually map out the way that they can actually impact international politics, European politics, of course, as part of it, it's really quite massive. I mean, turns out that that, uh, Niger is a big exporter of uranium. Uh, And uranium is not only important, obviously, for weapon development, I mean, at a time of war, uh, you know, at the same time, I mean, a lot of energy industries depend on essentially these things moving around. So what the Europeans have said uh, immediately after the coup took place um, is that the stocks in, in Europe were, were not going to be affected by the situation in Niger. At the same time, um, it is really clear that the price of uranium are actually going up because obviously one of the main sources is actually having sort of, you know, a situation of complete instability. The situation is so complicated that now, I don't know if you saw this, but the U.S. is refusing to call the coup a coup. Yeah, um, I did see this. It's very interesting. So this is actually something that every time I see this kind of stuff coming out of the White House, I'm reminded immediately, immediately of Bosnia, where the Clinton, the Clinton machine would walk around the White House and it was said that they refused to use the word genocide. It was referred to as the G word, because if there was any admission that there was a genocide, then there was actually compulsion to intervene. Uh, and I think that what you have here is quite similar. If there is indeed a coup, then the U.S. cannot actually turn any more aid to Niger. And obviously would, this would compromise, uh, you know, the footprint of the U.S., but also Western powers, I mean, France in particular in the area at a time in which very likely the Russians are trying to get their hands on whatever they can get, particularly in terms of power, I mean, having power and having the capacity to mobilize or to actually determine the line of policy in a country that is a major exporter of uranium with the Wagner Wagner people already floating in the area, it becomes a major security liability. One of the issues that you have is that, in fact, there's been a very, very strong PR push on the ground. So when you look at the reactions uh, over the last couple of days in Niger, what you will see is a lot of people calling, funny enough, for Russian backing and Russian presence. And this could be not a matter of really just you know, troops running while on the floor, on the ground. This could really be a matter of policy for the government of Niger under the new conditions of a very much of an aligned russian partner
0: it makes the french who are really want to see you know the the europe or the european union to be able to take these big bad international security tasks on their own would love to be able to compete with america at, at that level it it, it it kind of makes that a joke of things and the germans just look really naive uh, you know there's been troops in in Mali, there's been troops in niger Uh, And it just becomes this whack-a-mole of political stability slash instability, much like the EU is treating Libya and Turkey and now Tunisia. They also need Western this part of Western Africa also for control of migration. So there's a whole list of interests here that uh, are very important to European stability and make them look very naive and silly.
1: I think that that's right. I think that what you have, I mean, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about sort of all the talk about expansion, European expansion or European neighbor expansion to the east, where you have like, you know, countries like Albania, countries like, I mean, Bosnia, Serbia that has been sitting there forever. And of course, Turkey. Right now, people are talking about Moldova. But the fact is, you have really not only just long stories of political instability you have incredibly powerful political forces that are thoroughly anti-European. So, in a way, it becomes sort of a trojan force. And one of the things I have learned from living particularly in Germany all these years is that there is a very um, pernicious tendency to conflate wish and fact. Uh, wish is not fact. So, you know, you might wish Niger uh, to be actually a stable, democratic, pro-European, but the fact is that, you know, the forces that are luring, Uh, and that are actually competing for power uh, have not gone to sleep. Uh, And when they come forth, they come forth usually in extremely violent paroxysms. I don't think that this is a small story. I do not think it will actually gain a lot of traction in any case in the media because it's happening very far away. Uh, Once that all Europeans are evacuated, uh, we will probably hear about it circumstantially. But I am fairly confident that uh, European power, American power, uh, you know, and and Russian sphere power uh, are keeping a very close eye on what is happening there. So Niger is going to keep developing,
0: whether media are covering or not. I know it's very difficult for for major global media to be able to speak French, one of the largest, most spoken, widely spoken languages in the world, and actually get people to cover that area nonetheless. You are probably correct that we will not be hearing much of Niger once the immediacy of the story dies down. Um, But what else do you see coming up?
1: The first one is uh, Ukraine war into Russian territory. Uh, There was something uh, really quite curious that happened this week, which was in two successive days, the same building in Moscow was hit by Ukrainian um, drones. And uh, there were very strong signals from Kiev that as a matter of fact, Uh, the war has come to Russia. One of them was a statement by Zelensky himself who said that this was somewhat inevitable. Uh, So I think that this is going to continue to grow and I think that this is one that could become very dangerous because Russia would be willing to do who knows what uh, in order to respond to that and show itself in a position of, of strength there is a lot of very strange movement including uh, a violation of airspace in the um, belarusian polish border by belarusian forces uh, who were in a, in, a, um, in a military exercise at the border and it seems that two choppers crossed into nato territory what about you what do you think we have ahead i'm surprised it has not been a bigger story but the the incidents
0: of quran burning in denmark and sweden Uh, two countries famous for their freedom of expression and how that freedom of expression translates often into anti-Muslim behavior. But in this case, uh, unlike previous cases where the sort of uh, burning of the Quran or images of Muhammad have been encouraged or at least condoned by people in power, uh, basically under the auspices of, yes, this is not nice, but uh, we have freedom of expression here and we're going to protect our democracy and our liberal values against Uh, people who might find that offensive and that it's not illegal to be offended and it's not illegal to offend. These times, uh, these burnings are coming from right-wing radicals and anti-Muslim xenophobes. The rhetoric's changed a bit where you have people in power saying, this is actually not cool, please stop doing this. Uh, In fact, there was a great quote from, I believe, the Swedish prime minister saying, just because you have the right to do it, it might not be right to do. And I'm just—I'll be curious to see if there's any developments further into next week. If there's backlash more than we've seen from Muslim communities, both within the uh, within Europe and also um, in the Middle East, for example, we've seen some, uh, you know, demonstrations outside embassies and things, but nothing, fortunately, nothing uh, too too dangerous yet. But uh, we'll have to see how that uh, further develops in the weekend. You've been listening to Euroscopic with William Bluecroft and Martin Gack, written by us, produced by us, and edited by me. If you like what you heard, like us, subscribe to us, leave us a comment, tell us what you think, and share us with a friend. You can find us at Substack, that's Euroscopic.substack.com, and our podcast, wherever podcasts are heard. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.